from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so, so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. Now, this week's podcast was voted to be a revisit of Bob Berdella, and this one comes with my infamous disclaimer, disclaimer, because it is quite disturbing. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Robert Andrew Berdella Jr. was born on January 31, 1949 in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. In 1949, one of the very first long-running sitcoms, The Goldbergs, premiered on CBS. The Goldbergs was created by Gertrude Berg, who wrote, directed, produced, and starred in the show, which she had originally created for radio in 1929. The TV show was on the air until 1956, and Gertrude actually won an Emmy Award for her portrayal of Molly, the Goldbergs' matriarch. The show was groundbreaking for that time and had focused on the daily lives of a Jewish family in New York, tackling the everyday issues of an ordinary family while also addressing their desire to maintain their cultural roots while trying to find a way to assimilate into American culture. George Orwell's classic dystopian novel 1984 was published in the United Kingdom this year as well. Considered to be one of the most influential novels written during the 20th century, the story focused on a futuristic totalitarian state that set out to control the thoughts of its citizens and rewrite history. You know, sort of like what seems to be going on today with our own media. The novel was an immediate success and was later made into a movie, The book was so influential that many of its made-up terms have become part of normal speech, such as Big Brother and Thought Police. RCA perfected a system for broadcasting color television, 
And as I've said before, and much to the delight of serial killers the world over, the first Polaroid camera was sold for nearly $90. The Emmy Awards for U.S. television were first presented in 1949. Also, the first Volkswagen Beetle car sold in the United States and the first car with a Porsche badge is shown at the International Automobile Show in Geneva, the Porsche 356. Other notable people born in 1949 were Jeff Bridges, Lionel Richie, Bruce Springsteen, John Belushi, the Queen herself, Jessica Lange, Meryl Streep, Vera Wang, and Sigourney Weaver. So this was the atmosphere of the world when Bob was born. This can be important with regards to stress during the pregnancy and so on. He was the first child of Robert Berdella Sr., who worked the line in a Ford factory, and Mary Berdella, who was a housewife. He had one younger brother that was seven years younger than him, named Daniel. Robert Sr., who had been born in Pennsylvania and was of Italian descent, had been in the U.S. Naval Reserves during World War II with the rank of Quartermaster Chief Petty Officer. While at the Ford factory, he worked as a die setter, which is someone who prepares machine tools and production tools for others to use. They set up jigs, fixtures, cutting tools, and stamping tools on machines that are used for the shaping of metal. He was also devoutly Catholic and had his sons attend religious classes. So we get the very clear idea that Bob's father was a disciplined man, a blue-collar worker not afraid of hard work. Mary Etta Louise, Bob's mother, was born in Ohio. I really couldn't find out anything about Mary, which was a little disappointing. But Bob was intelligent, but was also extremely introverted. As a child growing up, he much preferred to stay at home rather than go visiting any friends at their houses, and he really didn't have any peers over to his own home either. He was terribly nearsighted, having difficulty seeing anything at a distance, and had to start wearing glasses at just five years old, as well as having a slight speech impediment. And then, to add insult to injury, while still a fairly young child, he was diagnosed with high blood pressure and was forced to take a few medications and, as a result, he was not allowed to play any school sports. Now, being introverted as he was, something tells me he wasn't particularly heartbroken about this. However, his younger brother happened to excel at sports. Now, their father, who placed a lot of importance on physicality, wanted both of his boys to be physical and play sports and would belittle Bob about him not being athletic, though his brother was not immune to his father's verbal taunting either. Their father would also become verbally and physically violent toward Bob, oftentimes beating him with a leather strap. And let me tell you from experience, that fucking hurts. But despite the abuse and humiliation he endured at home from his father, Bob actually did very well in school, even though he was described as, quote, difficult to teach. 
Now, his peers stated that he acted aloof, you know, thinking himself a bit above his peers, and he was known to be noticeably more condescending towards girls. But for the most part, due to his medical situation, his thick glasses, slight speech issue, and overall introverted nature, he was predictably bullied and therefore steered clear of all social functions. At 12 years old, it was said that he was baptized a Catholic. Now, as Bob reached puberty, that is when he realized that he was gay. During the early to mid-1960s, you see, this was still considered to be wrong, and especially so in his strictly religious household. So out of self-preservation, as one could imagine, he kept it a secret and told no one for years. He attempted to have a girlfriend once, but predictably, it didn't last long. It was also during this time that Bob began to show some talent with cooking and especially art. So during Christmas vacation in 1965, 16-year-old Bob and his family went to visit other family in a neighboring city. On Christmas Day, Bob's father suffered a massive heart attack and died in the hospital a few days later. And though his relationship with his father had been strained, as sources said, I mean, I would use a word stronger and more negative than strained, but regardless, Bob was very upset and sought solace in his family's religion. But predictably, this proved to not be a comfort, and he became cynical about all religious beliefs. Though his family was deeply religious, it was then that Bob stopped going to Mass and permanently left his Catholic faith. And then Bob Berdella would experience another trauma still. At the age of 16, he had gotten a job at a local restaurant and a man he worked with raped him. He never reported it. And then he later watched this movie called The Collector, which left a big impression on the teen. To quote a synopsis of this film, quote, Freddy is a lonely, socially awkward young man who purchases a 17th century farmhouse. An amateur entomologist, he spends his time capturing butterflies, of which he has a large collection. Frederick begins stalking a bougie London art student named Miranda Gray. One day, Frederick follows Miranda into a pub in Hampstead before abducting her on the street, incapacitating her with chloroform. Miranda awakens inside the cavernous, windowless stone cellar of Freddy's farmhouse, which he has adorned with a bed, some furnishings, clothing, painting tools, and an electric heater. Lucky her. She assumes she has either been taken for ransom or to be used as a sex slave and insists to Freddy that her father is not wealthy. Freddy explains he is not seeking sex or ransom. He proclaims his love for Miranda, and he agrees that he will free Miranda after four weeks, an allotted period he believes will allow her to, quote, get to know him. Now, on the 13th and allegedly final day of her captivity, Freddie prepares a meal in the house for Miranda and gives her a dress to wear for the occasion. Over dinner, he asks Miranda to marry him, she agrees, but Freddie senses her hesitation. 
Miranda attempts to flee the house, but he corners her in his study and chloroforms her before lying with her in an upstairs bedroom. When she regains consciousness in the cellar, Freddie, you know, assures her that he did not rape her. He tells her he intends to keep her until she, quote, tries to fall in love with him. Needless to say, he doesn't get what he wants. Still a movie I'd see, but regardless. So, about a year or so after his father's death, Bob's mother remarried, and he was not okay with that. He saw it as a betrayal to his own father, and he became even more withdrawn, throwing himself into his solitary activities, such as collecting stamps and coins, painting and writing to his various pen pals. Now, this is a hobby he would actually keep up with, as he loved receiving correspondence back, where they would send him stamps from their country, along with photographs of mythical and historical icons, information about their ancient cultures and local architecture, and he began avidly collecting. Bob graduated high school in 1967 and moved from Ohio to Missouri to attend the Kansas City Art Institute. You see, away from his family, he finally felt comfortable enough to truly be himself and became open about his sexuality. And that was his childhood. So let's take a look. Bob was born into what comes across as a middle-class, blue-collar family. His father had been in the reserves, which is, of course, respectable, and he worked a hard and decently paying job in a car assembly factory. His mother was a housewife, perfectly domestic and normal, perfectly average. But it was said that his father wanted the very stereotypical sons who would be these, you know, strong, strapping, muscled athletes to show their physical superiority, or that's the impression I got. One gets the feeling that in order to have his father's love and approval, the boys would have to cram themselves into that mold he set for them. And while that works for some children, this is a very unhealthy expectation for many others. Involving your child in sports has positive benefits, and I think most wouldn't dispute that. However, Pushing and forcing children into playing sports can negatively impact their emotional development and damage the parent-child bond. Parents generally are the worst judges of their child's ability. Yes, I'm serious. The emotional investment clouds judgment and blinds parents from seeing that their child may not be gifted in sports. And the children do not want to disappoint their parents, obviously, so they just go along. I've seen this very family dynamic in real life several times. God forbid they ask their sports kid if they even want to play, but whatever. Instead of identifying the lack of ability, some parents push harder and end up pushing the child too far. When children lack ability but are forced to compete... They are placed in humiliating situations where they continually fail. Instead of cultivating healthy self-esteem from sports participation, the repeated embarrassment and humiliation can often cause the child to become stressed, anxious, withdrawn, and depressed. The child also may develop a negative sense of self due to poor performances. 
Some children simply are not interested or do not have the physical prowess to play sports. Some kids, such as I was, couldn't care less about sports. I wanted to make art and listen to music and read books and often thought about becoming an author. I was the choir geek, a metalhead, and I often isolated myself in the dark room of my high school because forced socialization was exhausting. I wanted to make things, not play sports. But that, at least back in my day, made you an outcast. If you weren't on a team or cheering for that team, blaring the latest country and western music, then you didn't really matter much. That went for my peers as well as most of the teachers, but maybe not all. And because Bob wasn't interested in being popular or fitting in, and he surely wasn't interested in playing sports, well, his father bullied him. He physically and verbally abused him. And Bob was diagnosed with high blood pressure as a child, which would severely limit the amount of physical activity he could do in the fucking first place. So then let's add on the Coke bottle glasses, the introverted nature, and sprinkle in a speech impediment, and you get the disastrous recipe for bullying at school as well. So bullied at home, bullied at school. So we have a child who was verbally and physically abused at home by a father who he could never win over or impress. A father that wasn't interested in taking time to get to know his own son and what his actual interests were. And then when he was at school, he was bullied for nearly the same reasons on top of his physical appearance and, well, what do you get? You get a child that begins to display antisocial behaviors, one who finds mm, solace in solitude, where it's quiet, where one can be alone, their thoughts uninterrupted. A child who prefers withdrawing into themselves and their own interests and yet has no one to share those with. Then the icing on this cake is that he realized he was gay. Not only was the time period not conducive with being accepted for what he was born as, but this would have only pushed his father's disapproval even further. Can you imagine? And yet, when his father died, he was said to be devastated, right? So why would that be? Well, let's be honest, right? So sometimes people die who you, well, hated. And you're right, that does sound really harsh, but sometimes it's just the truth. Or even if you didn't hate the person, maybe you really didn't like them, or you had a love-hate relationship with them, or you found them to be very difficult— Whatever form that takes within your own personal experience with that person is valid, first of all. In this particular situation, it is the lost potential that shapes the grief. For Bob, it would have been that he most likely never felt that his dad truly appreciated him for who he was, that perhaps he felt he could never get the acknowledgement and approval of his father to feel that his father was actually proud of him on any level, and with his father's passing, he knew none of that would ever come to pass. He knew he'd never be able to bask in the sunshine of his father's ultimate acceptance. And then we have sources saying he felt his mother had betrayed his father's memory by getting married so quickly after his father's death. When a widowed parent starts to date, many people have feelings of nervousness, 
hurt, betrayal, and fear. Concerns that the new love interest will take the place of the lost parent are really common. And let's remember that in the course of his 16th year of life, he lost his father, gained a stranger as a stepfather, was raped while working his part-time job at a restaurant, and had just become comfortable in the realization that he was gay. The combination of all of this would be overwhelming, and yet, it is still no excuse for the absolute torment that he put his victims through. So, let's continue. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So sources said his first year of college was fantastic. He was well-liked by his professors, and he maintained good grades. But by his second year, he had aligned himself with a group of friends that got him onto drugs. He was a bit business-savvy, though, and would then turn around and sell them for more money. But it was now that he began to resent the authoritative staff at the college. It was at this point that Bob Berdella began torturing and killing animals. This fed his fledgling but ever-increasing fantasies about torturing and killing humans. At one point, he was arrested for possession of marijuana and LSD, but was later released for lack of evidence. In one of his classes, he was assigned an art project. He decided to graphically kill and cook a duck in front of the class, which horrified and disgusted his peers and the professor. Now, Bob stated it was, quote, art, but dropped out of school after. And of course, the last thing he wanted to do was to return to Ohio. So he stayed in Kansas City and moved into the Hyde Park District. He was now living his life completely out in the open and began spending most of his time with male prostitutes, drug dealers, and runaway boys. Boy, this sure does remind me of Dean Coral. So, Bob dropped out of college, right? And he immediately threw himself into being a chef and worked for actually a few very popular restaurants in Kansas City at that time. He also began befriending people that were living with drug addiction and petty crimes to try to help straighten them out. His neighbors described him as seeming like a foster parent to these people, but Bob became upset and frustrated when his efforts were largely for nothing. I mean, we all know addiction is a bitch, right? But it should come as no surprise that Bob became sexually active with some of his, quote, wards, if you will, using that as a means of control. He would allow some to live in his house for free. In the late 1970s, Bob became involved in the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, eventually becoming their chairman. Throughout this time in his life, if you remember, Berdella had kept and maintained contact with pen pals across the globe. 
Because of this, he had accrued an impressive collection of oddities that he began to sell out of his home. Surprisingly, it became quite the profitable side business. And after realizing the business he was running out of his house was becoming profitable, he decided to rent a space at a flea market and named it Bob's Bazaar Bazaar where he continued to sell things from overseas as well as antiques. And though he had become a very respected chef, he quit being a chef and devoted his time to his business fully. At times, he made good money in his shop. At other times, he would either have to sell his things to other shops at a discounted price, or he would go out and steal things to sell. Then Bob began a pretty serious and emotional relationship with a Vietnam veteran who had severe PTSD. However, the relationship did not last long and Bob was pretty heartbroken. At Bob Berdella's shop in the early 1980s, he befriended another merchant who had a booth next to his by the name of Paul Howell and his 19-year-old son, Jerry. In July 1984, the teen wanted to go to a dance hall in a neighboring area, and the now 35-year-old Bob offered to drive him. He gave Jerry alcohol and Valium while in the car, which rendered Jerry nearly unconscious, then drove him back to his house, where he promptly injected him with a high-powered tranquilizer. He then tied the teen to his bed and gagged him. And here's with another little quick disclaimer, okay? So for the next 28 hours, Jerry endured repeated rapes, oftentimes with foreign objects, and extreme torture. When Jerry would beg to be released, Bob would drug him and continue. When Jerry would ask him why he was doing this to him, Bob ignored him completely. Bob also took photographs and kept very detailed notes about everything he did to Jerry. Finally, the teen died from a combination of asphyxiation, which was a combination of his gag and his own vomit. But Bob wasn't done with him quite yet. When Jerry Howell died from, again, choking on his own vomit, Bob dragged his body to the basement where he hung the body upside down above a large cooking pot, then made some incisions to allow the blood to drain. The next day, he dismembered the body, double-wrapped the sections in newspaper and trash bags, then put them in the garbage bin outside for the trash company to take to the landfill. And when the police came to question him, he stated that he had dropped Jerry off at the dance hall and hadn't seen him since. But as it is with so many serial killers who get questioned early in their, you know, career, Bob didn't kill again for nearly a year. And just also like most serial killers, once Berdella got a taste, his urge to torture and kill again would not stop. Bob's next victim was 23-year-old Robert Sheldon. Robert was a drifter who had lodged in Bob's home in the past, well, Robert showed up on Bob's doorstep and asked if he could stay with him again. And while Robert had been, and still was, an excellent roommate, and 
Bob was not sexually attracted to him, he decided to play with him regardless. On April 12, 1985, Bob arrived home to find Robert on the couch, drinking. Bob used sedatives to drug Robert, then got him upstairs and restrained him. He used piano wire to bind his hands, put drain cleaner in one of his eyes, poked needles under his nails, and even forced caulking adhesive into his ears for three days straight. When a roofer came on the third day to work on Bob's roof, he decided he needed to kill Robert, so he put a bag over his head and suffocated him. He got rid of the remains by dismemberment and putting the pieces out in the trash bin, you know, except the head. He kept that, along with another very careful set of notes. So Bob was now 36 years old. A month after killing Robert Sheldon, Bob found Mark Wallace asleep in his backyard shed. Mark was an acquaintance, and Bob knew he had depression, so he offered to inject Mark with Thorazine to calm his nerves. Mark agreed. Bob then took Mark upstairs, bound him, and began to torture him. Bob fastened clamps to Mark's nipples and sent electric shocks through his body until Mark would fall unconscious again, only to repeat this over and over. He also continued to inject chemicals into Mark's muscles in his back. The pain and drugs became too much, and in less than a day, Mark died. Bob disposed of the body in the same manner as the ones before. On September 26, 1985, Bob got a phone call from Walter James Ferris asking if he could come stay with Bob for a short while. Once Walter was in the house, Bob drugged him with tranquilizers, carried him upstairs, and tied him to his bed. For the next 27 hours, Bob tortured him almost without pause. He attached alligator clips to Walter's shoulder and genitals, then sent 7,700 volts of electricity, which is enough to cause respiratory paralysis and severe burns to the body throughout his body, sometimes up to five minutes at a time. He also stuck needles into his neck, among other extreme torture tactics. He kept very careful notes about each act of depravity he inflicted on Walter. And this torment was nearly non-stop. The physical tortures and sexual assaults with inanimate objects became so unbelievably intense that when Bob would pause, Walter was unable to sit up for more than a few seconds. Finally, after 27 hours of continued torture, Walter died. In his notation of the experience of Walter's death, Bob only wrote, quote, stopped the project. Nine months later, in June of 1986, Bob was walking through Liberty Memorial Park where he ran into another acquaintance, Todd Stoops, who was a former male prostitute. Bob asked if Todd would like to go back to his house for lunch, and Todd agreed. Berdella later stated that he was extremely attracted to Todd and wanted to keep him alive as a sex slave. How very Dahmer of him. 
And once Bob got Todd into his house, he subdued him with strong tranquilizers and tied him to his bed, just like his previous victims. Because Bob was so sexually attracted to Todd, he decided he would torture and terrify him into total submission. That was the idea, essentially creating a sex slave. For the next two weeks, Todd would experience unimaginable pain, guys. Bob injected him with drugs, gave him strong electric shocks through his eyelids in an attempt to blind him, and Drano was injected into his throat to try to make him mute. Bob raped him himself, as well as using many other instruments, causing severe blood loss. Todd begged for his life. Bob tried to nurse him back to reasonable health, but Todd ultimately died. Bob disposed of him in the same manner as his previous victims. In the spring of 1987, Bob befriended 20-year-old Larry Pearson, whom he met in the flea market. It didn't take Bob long to invite Larry to live at his house. In June, Berdella decided he would, you know, quote, capture Larry and get him drunk. Once he did, he then injected him with tranquilizers, dragged him to the basement, and tied his arms above his head. Bob tortured Larry with the same methods as his previous victims, Drano injections, repeated rapes, and high-voltage electric shocks. He also used a metal rod and broke several bones in Larry's hand. This went on for six weeks. Finally, Larry actually bit the end of Bob's penis so severely that Bob had to go to the hospital. There, they stated he would have to stay. So Bob snuck, you know, rushed home and murdered Larry and then went back to the hospital. In May of 1988, Bob picked up his last victim, 22-year-old male prostitute Christopher Bryson. And when I say male prostitutes, I don't mean to belittle who they were or what they were doing. A person is a person, right? So Bob offered Christopher money for sex and took him to his home. Once in the house, Bob hit Christopher over the head with an iron rod and knocked him unconscious. He tied him to his bed and repeated many of the same tortures as his previous victims, plus swabbing his eyeballs with ammonia, saying, quote, The only thing you need to think about are you, me, and this house. End quote. After a few days, Bob told Christopher that he was contemplating backing off of the more horrific torture, but that the rapes would continue with no exception. Bob explained to him to not try anything because he had had victims before and they were all now dead. Some days later, Christopher noticed that Bob had left some matches near enough for him to be able to reach. So Christopher, after enduring this crazy, insane, extreme torture and brutal rapes by the hands of Bob, found his opportunity to escape. He burned through his restraints with the matches, jumped from the second story window, and yelled at the first person he saw on the street to call the police. He was naked, save a dog collar and leash. He had broken his foot from the fall and was bleeding from his anus. 
The person took him to a neighboring house where they did contact the police. Once the police arrived, Christopher gave them all of the gory details. They then took him to a nearby hospital and submitted the request for a search warrant of Bob's house. Not long after, Bob returned home and was immediately arrested. So after he was taken into custody, the police searched his home. What they found was shocking. Syringes, an electrical transformer with wires leading to the bed, pill bottles for sedatives, eye drops, a long iron pipe, rope, leather belts, a human skull inside of a closet, human teeth in an envelope, a hacksaw, a miter saw, a chainsaw, all three of which had pubic hair and blood on them, hundreds of Polaroids of young men in various stages of torture and death, a decomposing head in the backyard, several human vertebrae in the yard, torturous sexual devices, and so much more. Another significant find was on top of a dresser, his notebook describing in vivid detail each step in his process, from his victim's capture until their death. And side note, guys, I have dug all over hell and creation to find these notes, and I can't find them. So if any of you find them, please send me a link, and I will share with the rest of our little family here, okay? But in 1988, Bob was sentenced to six life sentences with no possibility of parole. He tried to convince the world that he was actually a good person who had done great things for the Kansas City community, that he had simply made mistakes. He complained about prison conditions and that the staff were refusing to give him his heart medication. Bob Berdella died of a heart attack while in a Missouri State Prison on October 8, 1992. He was 43 years old. So what do we have here, guys? Though he did have an arguably, you know, tough childhood by most standards, it's still hard to understand. Of course, we are missing some key pieces, such as his mother's temperament or his grandparents or how they raised his parents. We can't know if it was something genetic. I found no instance where he had tortured and killed animals when he was a child, and we didn't hear anything about any outstanding deviant behavior during his childhood. In our years here together, guys, you with me, we've actually heard much, much worse, and yet, Bob was one of the more sadistic killers. So what are your theories on what happened? What was going on with him, huh? Tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment on this podcast, or you can DM me on Instagram at Serial underscore Killing. There's also a Serial Killing, a podcast fan page on Facebook. Please come join if you'd like. I'm pretty active on there talking to everybody. And most of all, thank you so very much, guys, for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. And have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.